I, uh, I watched uh, a couple of weeks ago Back to the Future, the, the classic. Has anybody seen that? Surely a lot of you have seen that one, yeah? So um, if you haven't, basically it's about this guy called Martin McFly who gets in a car that can time travel and accidentally goes back to the 1950s. So he types in some buttons, and uh, before he knows it, he's back in his past, and the whole film is about him trying to get back to the future. Um, but uh, they go to 1950s America. And you can tell when they get out of the car that they're in the 1950s because everybody's dressed like they would have dressed back in those days. And, um, you know, the music is all from the 50s, and they've got cars from the 50s and stuff. So you feel, you know, like you are in 1950s America. And uh, I do not have a time-traveling car, but I want to invite you to imagine that we're stepping into one together, and we're going to go back in time. But we're going to go back to Jerusalem, because this is a talk based on the Bible. And uh, we're going to type in some dates in the little thing, and the dates we're going to type in are 586 BC. So we're going back a lot further than 1950. So we get in the car, boom, special effects, we land. 19, sort of like, not 1955. We land in 586 BC in Jerusalem. We open up the door and we step out. What do we find? Well, we would find, if we went back to Jerusalem at that particular moment in time, that we were entering a war zone. So we would look around us and we would see a city that has been decimated in many ways. The, the temple, which once stood tall and majestic right in the heart of Jerusalem, was reduced to a pile of rubble. The city walls that surrounded it and gave it security had been burned down and broken down. The houses are a wreck. The streets are full of refuge. We would have, we would have walked through it. Some of you are thinking, I'd rather go to, back to 1950s America uh, with the milkshakes and the jukeboxes. But... Um, as we walked around it, what I imagine we would have seen is not just the devastated buildings, but the, the people who've been devastated. Jerusalem at this stage had been um, under attack for three years. It had had a siege, and so people were hollowed out by starvation. Their eyes were empty and vacant. They'd been crushed, not just on the outside physically, but on the inside. Their souls had been affected deeply by this. And uh, we'd walk around it, and we would see basically a smoking heap of rubble. And what I want to suggest um, in what is going to be an incredibly cheerful talk this morning, that uh, in some ways that picture of devastation um, can be applied today. Uh, obviously as a church, we are currently journeying through something that I think the word devastating would be an apt one to describe where we're at. But it doesn't just describe our um, particular situation, our unique situation as a church at the moment. Um, in some ways, you can apply that to the narrative that's being told in the world around us, that we're part of a world where a lot of the story, a lot of the conversation is that things are on a downward spiral, that for the first time in generations, um, the, the expectation is that we will be handing on worse things to our children than the ones we, we ourselves received. The planet is heating up, and therefore it's all melting down. We've got refugee crises happening. There are wars that are happening in different parts of the world that we see regularly. There are uh, famines going on. There are countries that have racked up enormous debts. And of course, we're just trying to move on from the pandemic that crippled the world for a few years. Uh, there's a sense in which you know, we ourselves are struggling to, uh, to pay our bills. There's a lot of cynicism around. 
cynicism around the government, cynicism around the media, cynicism around the church. And if we look at the church in our part of the world, the West, um, you, you can understand why, because the church for years and years now has been shrinking and splintering and struggling, and it's hard to see how that's going to get turned around. And then we look in the mirror at our own lives, and often they don't feel like the Disney movie, uh, you know, told us it was going to be. The fairy godmother still hasn't turned up to wave the wand. She hasn't turned the pain into beauty. She hasn't made it all okay again. And so we find ourselves at times disillusioned with how life has ended up. I didn't think my marriage when we started was going to go like this. I didn't expect my relationship with my kids to go off the rails to the extent that it has. I thought by this point in my life, I'd have security in who I was, but I don't seem to have that. I thought maybe I'd have security in my finances, but still I don't seem to have that. So it can feel um, at times like there are reasons to despair. And we are living in a world, there's lots of good. There's so much good, but also there is a famine of hope whilst at the same time there being an abundance of despair and an abundance of cynicism. I was talking with some, some good friends um, a little while ago, and they'd just been through an awful, awful time in their life, and they were giving me some advice, because uh, I was going through some difficult stuff. And uh, they'd lost their little girl. She'd been born with, with some real serious health complications, and uh, the hospital had managed to sustain her through intervention for two weeks, and then she died. And uh, he, he was just giving me um, advice on, on how to deal with something uh, that was going on in our family life. And one of the things that he said to me that I've never forgotten is he said, we decided to fight for hope. And the truth is hope is something that has to be contended for. It doesn't just drop out of the sky. And one of the questions that I want to try and approach this morning a little bit and answer in a small way is how do we find hope in a world of despair and in a, in a season of cynicism? How do we find hope? Now you might well be thinking, well, if we're going to look for hope, why on earth did we travel back in time to 586 B.C.? and wander around uh, streets that have been utterly devastated. And the reason we've come back to this time is because if we walk for long enough around the streets of Jerusalem in these days, we'd bump into a guy called Jeremiah. He was a prophet around at that moment. And uh, he, he wrote Lamentations. If you are looking for a highly depressing book in the Bible, let me recommend Lamentations to you. Five chapters of him witnessing the utter devastation around him in Jerusalem in those days. But there is in the middle of Lamentations this daffodil of defiance that springs up, the first flower of spring against the winter, this declaration that this, what we see now, is not what will always be. Lamentations chapter 3, this is what we're going to look at. Verse 18 says this. So I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped for from the Lord I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Jeremiah says those words. He doesn't say them when Jerusalem has been restored and everything's fine. He says it in the midst of the darkness when he can see that everything isn't. And this is why this is the place to come to find hope. So um, just to start with, where does he begin? This verse 18, I say, so I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen the film Inside Out. It's like a Pixar movie. But um, even if you're not at the stage of life where you've got little kids, I would highly recommend watching this film. Uh, It's about a little girl, um, but really it's about her emotions. And so her emotions, you go inside of the little girl, as it were, and her emotions are these characters. And we've got a little photo of the different emotions uh, here. These are like supposedly the five key emotions that we experience. From the left, fear, anger, joy, sadness, and disgust. I don't know which of those you're feeling right now. Um, but uh, th- th- those are sort of the characters in the film. And really, the, 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 the little girl has had this experience where life up until this particular point in her, in her existence has been really good. She's mainly been joy. And then her parents move house. They move to another part of the country. And so she begins this emotional journey this, of turmoil and, and wrestling with challenge and wrestling with difficulty. And uh, I read just recently about this artist who went to visit Disneyland. And at Disneyland, Disney now owns Pixar, at Disneyland you can, you can meet the characters, a bit like you can meet Mickey Mouse. They've got these characters wandering around and you can go and take um, selfies with them and stuff like that. And he said he saw the, the emotions and he was incredibly struck by the fact that the one that had the longest queue to take a photo with was sadness. And he joined the queue, he got in line. And he said he he stood there while person after person after person gave Sadness a hug, had a selfie, and then went on their way. And eventually he got to the front and he gave Sadness a hug and he had a selfie. And he said for him, he found it liberating, incredibly liberating. And I wonder if part of the reason for that is because we're living at a time and a culture that says it's all about the pursuit of happiness. And so we flee from grief. We run from sadness. We distract ourselves away from the pain. We try and numb it and say it's not really there, but it is. And the place, the journey from despair to hope starts is not by jumping the step where we say, gone is my splendor and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. The journey begins by taking a selfie, as it were, with sadness by getting in the queue to recognize this is hard. This is painful. You know, why is it that this this dream I had has ended up here? Why is it that this, how I'd envisioned this job going, I've landed here? Why is it that I started out with dreams to serve the Lord in this particular way and somehow I've got here, gone is my splendor and all that I'd hoped for from the Lord. You start in the pain. You start in the stillness and the sadness. And this idea that sometimes goes around in the church that we've got to all live in the victory all the time, there's, there's such truth in that and such distortion at the same time because we are called to live in the victory. That's another talk. But we're also called to sit in the pain and the sorrow of the world that we're a part of. Jesus is called a man of sorrows. To engage in this, in, in this is just it's to be honest that this is hard 
and it's painful. We start there. And if we start there, we have a hope of coming to robust hope. We've got to go through it, though. Daniel Strickland uh, has written a book that I've read just in the last week or two called The Other Side of Hope. And in it, she tells stories of her own experience, searching, fighting, as it were, for hope. And she talks about some of the people she's met along the way. And one of them is this big guy called Red Dog. And she met him when she was working at a drop-in center for the homeless. And she said he's just this massive, larger-than-life character who always had a smile on his face, always had a joke to tell, um, but also had addiction that crippled him, that he'd struggled with his whole life. His background had been he'd, um, you know, been ripped out of his family environment very early on. He'd experienced racism for many years. He'd been abused in all sorts of different ways. And, he, um, and yet he still smiled. And she said that one of the things that was a bit... Um, you know, quirky about his eccentric personality was that he had bells on his shoes that he would always wear. And so you could hear him before you saw him. And she describes her church that she was attending. She's a member of the Salvation Army. And she said every Sunday they would have church in this massive church building that had hardly anybody and hardly any people in the building. This little remnant would meet at the front and they would do the things we do in church. And then she said every single week, what would happen at some point during the service is they would hear the bells jingling and they would know that Red Dog was about to arrive and Red Dog would burst in to the back of this big auditorium and uh, he, would start sh- he would start walking down the aisle and he would start shouting, sing me the song, Danielle, sing me the song, just sing me the song. And... Uh, Danielle said that they'd learned as a church from experience that the only way to deal with this was to literally stop whatever they were doing and sing the song. So she says that whoever was preaching, if this happened when the talk was going on, he would literally just put the microphone down and just get Danielle up at the piano. She said if there was a choir, you know, and they were singing, and this guy comes in going, sing me the song, Danielle, the choir would stop the song they were singing. They would all look at Danielle, and she would start playing. And the song that he always wanted to be sung was Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And they had at the front of this church this this bench, the prayer bench. They called it the mercy seat. And the idea of the prayer bench was that you would come and kneel there um, to pray, but nobody ever did it because everybody was too self-conscious and too self-aware to ever want to look like you needed help, apart from Red Dog. And so what would happen is, as they all sang Amazing Grace, he would make his way down to the mercy seat and he would literally fling himself on it and he would cry and he would wail. And he wouldn't do it for long, Daniel said, but by the time they usually got to the third verse, he sort of dusted himself off and walked out of the building, and then they just picked up where they'd left off. And she said at the time, she saw it as an interruption. And she looks back now, and she sees it more as an invitation. That those of us who struggle, and I'm one of them, to come and ask for mercy, might realize that the only place you can ever find hope, hope that cannot be extinguished, is with him the God of compassion whose mercies are new every single morning. 
and, and to kneel before him as Red Dog Dig, knowing, admitting, I haven't got this together that saved a wretch like me. It's to take a selfie with sadness. How do you find hope for your child that's far from God? You start with the fact they're far from God. You grieve it. How do you find hope for a church that's lost its weight? The church. Where, where, where it's like, how, you know, how have we got here? We grieve it. It starts with sadness, but it doesn't stay there. So if we're at the bottom of the pit of despair, then it goes on. Um, I love the way that it says that everything I'd hoped for is gone. Then, um, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So what that says to us is it's possible for us to, just by calling something to mind, find hope. The situation is the same, that doesn't alter, but what, by just by what we're thinking about, it's almost as if hope can begin to enter into us. And there's a, a deliberate action here, because we don't need to call our misery to mind. Our misery comes anyway, right? When we don't want to think about it, it comes. All the stuff we don't want to think about can cloud in. It's not an act to call that, but to call, um, to, to deliberately choose to meditate not just on the misery, but on the mercy of God, is something that requires discipline. So Ali Martin, she's got a dog, a puppy, a Benny, and it's like, this, it's like her jumper, but just a lot smaller. It's this little white ball of fluff that just runs like a little nutter around wherever it goes. It's incredibly badly trained, but that's not a reflection of Ali. Uh, it's just a little one, so she's just getting the hang. But whenever she has to bring it to a meeting, because um, uh, at this point they can't be left alone for more than 35 seconds, is what I'm told. When they're brought to a meeting, they, they, he, he, Benny runs around, he just like wets himself like all over. So the children next door might well be playing in a dog's wee. Um, but try not to think about that. Um, and, and you have to call it. You have to speak to it. You have to discipline. You have to train your mind is like Benny. It runs around, wetting itself wherever it goes. And for us, there's, there's a place for, I need to call, I need to choose this. It's a choice. He says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And what I've been, I suppose, rediscovering again is that hope comes not from an absence of suffering, but from a confidence, I know this sounds simplistic, but I think it's true, from a confidence in God's love, even in the midst of suffering. Our identity is not in our situation. Our identity is not in any failure we've had uh, as people over the years. It's not in uh, our mistakes. It's not in the things that have been said over us or our identity is in who he says we are. And the more I do this journey, the more I'm discovering for myself the truth of the fact that so much of discipleship is, is, is internalizing that truth that he speaks over us, letting it become what lives inside of our core. And that can be anything in there. Like, you know, I've seen videos on YouTube decades ago even of young people who went online to say, am I ugly? Tell me the truth. Thousands of views Hundreds of comments. Yes, no, maybe. They've got no one to tell them the truth about themselves, so they're asking the internet to give them some truth. And we might not do that, but we do a similar thing. People speak things over us, some of them good, 
You're brilliant. You're kind. I see this in you. Lots of them not so good. People who should have known better. People who raised us, perhaps. Friends at school, bosses, colleagues. They say things over us, and we receive it. And it's not good, but it, but it becomes a lie from which we live. What is the story that you tell yourself about who you are? Because as God's people, the words that he speaks over us are, you are my beloved, you're mine. I am yours and you are mine. And let's not underestimate the concrete impact getting that in our bellies has on how we live. And so Danielle, part of her story that she shares in her book is she talks about her own experience growing up. And she had a very difficult upbringing. Uh, she was sexually abused. She, um, in her words, went off the rails really quite early on in life. Um, and she got into trouble with the police at all sorts of different occasions. And she talks about there was this one time when she was about 19, I think, where she was in a holding cell. She was going to be um, putting on trial in court She'd been caught and it'd been pretty bad. She'd robbed um, stuff from a, a store. She'd knocked a guy over on the way out and damaged his shoulder. She'd stolen a car. She'd been caught with drugs on her when the police finally caught up with her. And, and the way that she describes it is, and she didn't care. She didn't care. She said she sat there in court while all these people came forward and testified about the damage that she'd done. And she was just like, stuff you all. And she said, and then while they were holding her in this cell... Um, this elderly lady from the Salvation Army that she was, she'd grown up in because her parents were in there. This elderly lady came to see her. And Danielle says that when she saw this woman, she just internally was just like, oh, please. You know, rolling her eyes. Really, do I need a lecture now? And she said this woman came into the cell and she just pressed a little card into her hand, which was the phone number of a lawyer. Practical love. And then what she did is she hugged her and she whispered in her ear, I really love you. And then she left. And as they closed the door and Danny was left in, in that cell alone, she said in that moment she had a vision of Jesus. And he just did what that woman had done. He came to her, he wrapped his arms around her and he whispered in her ear, I really love you. And she'd heard the gospel so many times. But in that moment, it was as though someone switched the light on. And it's not that everything got better. She was in a pit that she had to emerge from slowly. But it was, it was enough in that moment for her to understand who she was. And for us, in our own version of despair in your version of a pit or a prison cell. We can think what I need right now is all of these problems to go away and, and wouldn't that be nice? But actually what we need before any of that is for us to know the greatness of his love for us. That that is our core. That we might live from this. And we say, well, is that going to make it all better? Is this going to magically transform my life? And the answer to that is no. It won't instantly change the circumstances and the situation. I love the way that he, the, uh, the Jeremiah puts it. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. Just consider that sentence for a moment. Because of his great love, 
How great is his love. His love that is so high, it exceeds the heavens. His love that is so wide, it got nailed to a cross. His love that is so deep, it sinks down to our darkest moments and places of shame and still runs towards us. His love that is so long, it never literally ends. It's like new every single morning of every single day, January to December, 2023 to 2023 and beyond it. It's so long because of his great love. I am not dead. That's what he's saying. Because of your great love, I'm just about still here. I'm not consumed. I'm still going. You know, he doesn't say because of your great love, Jerusalem's magically reappeared again and my life is fine. He says because of your great love, I'm hanging in. And for us as a church, what I feel like that is a word because of his great love. We haven't been consumed. We will not be consumed. Sometimes it's enough just to get to the end of the day and say, look, I haven't been consumed today because your love is here. Because your love is here, I'm still going. And we can forget the riches that we have to live off when we think about his love. Now to finish, this matters not just because we face problems in our own walk, and we do and we will. But it matters because we are a sent people. And I forget that. I don't know if you do sometimes. We are a people with a mission. We are a people who are here in the darkness of the world to be a light to it. We're here in and amongst the pain to be salt and to be healing for that. We are to be not just people who receive hope, but bearers of it. People who somehow kindle it. Like you strike a match and you throw it in a fire and suddenly the warmth comes. That's to be us. And how are we going to give people hope if we haven't got any? We can't give that which we don't have away. And as we, as we dwell in hope, we begin to live from a place of, of choosing. Do you know what? You might say, my life makes no difference, but I know that's not true. You might say that it's not worth much, but I know how precious I am. And from there you can give. What does this look like? Two stories to finish. One, uh, Mother Teresa, I love reading stories of her life. And one that stayed with me since I came across it is that she once went to visit this guy who lived in the most ramshackled little place you can imagine. And uh, his life had obviously been very hard. He was very poor. And just, he'd just been broken by it. And despair had set in. And there was an apathy about him because it was just a sense of worthlessness. And what difference does my life make? I mean, what did Mother Teresa do as a bringer of hope in that situation? She cleaned his house. She just went around his house, cleaned it up, tidied it up. She found this broken lamp in the corner and she, she took it away, got it fixed, brought it back, plugged it in, switched it on. She saw him and she loved him in a really practical way. And he wrote to her years after that moment and he said, Mother Teresa, I just want you to know that the light you turned on in my life is still burning. Hope is a refusal to give up on anybody. What's hope? What's hope? Well, hope can be, think about it like this, Rob Parsons, uh, I don't know if you've come across him, but he tells a story about a lady who wrote to him and he said her daughter had, uh, she said her daughter had left home at 18 
and didn't want to have anything to do with them. They, they'd raised her to, to know Jesus. She rejected everything. She rejected Christianity, but she rejected them, and she left. And, and for six years, they never heard anything from her. They didn't know if she was alive or if she was dead. But every night, just before they went to bed, the wife would say to the husband, darling, just leave the porch light on tonight. Just leave the porch light on. Every Christmas for six years, uh, the, 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 the woman, the mother, she would get a little Christmas tree. She'd put it outside the front of the house, just like she used to do when her daughter was little, just in case she came by, just in case she saw it. After six years, at the age of 24, this daughter out of nowhere came back, and there was amazing reconciliation, and she came to know Jesus for herself. And she told her parents that during that six-year period, um, she had actually, on many occasions, driven to the street where they lived at two or three o'clock in the morning and sat in the car in the street. And she said, I looked down the street and every single house was dark apart from yours. There was one house with a light on. And she said, I knew you left it on for me. And what Rob Pastor says off the back of that is he says that whatever's going on, wherever they're at, however far they go, however dark it seems, there is always hope. And we are to be the people who, as it were, leave the light on. Because we know that even though we find ourselves in situations where we can rightfully say, gone is my splendor. I never thought it would be like this. We can take a selfie with the sadness of that moment and of that experience, and yet we can whistle and call to mind truth that because of his great love, we are not consumed. He is our portion. And knowing this, we go forth to comfort those around us who even more than we do need to know there is a God of hope and he lives today.